Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. I'll, say, I'll just say what I think um, is clear from that response, that this character, Danny Plainview, is just one of the great characters now in American cinema, an amazing man who's a, a loner, an ambitious character, and um, of course couldn't be such a great character if, it wasn't, if he wasn't surrounded by this amazing movie, not just the other actors in the film, but every element of the movie, the music, uh, cinematography, production design, everything is, is amazing, so congratulations for this piece of work. Um, I'll start, I guess, by, by asking about Danny Plainview. Let's just start with his character, and, and maybe, Paul, if you could tell us a bit where he came from, because I know the book was inspired by the Upton Sinclair novel, Oil, but also by real-life um, person. Yeah, I'm nervous that you called him Danny, because I think okay. he'd kill you. <laughs> da Daniel Plainview would kill you if you called right. him Danny, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, ba we, we did base it loosely on Edward Doheny, right. and pieces of it come from a character that Upton Sinclair created in oil. Um, and we're just thinking about it today, and I remember the line, there's an amazing line that Upton Sinclair wrote in that speech, when he says, um, I, can get the bi I have the business connections so I can get the lumber for the derrick. Such things go by friendship in a rush like this. And I thought, well, anybody that can say that is pretty cool, you know. <laughs> and those sorts of things helped, helped, helped creating whoever the hell he is, really, you know. So you created the character and also got immersed in this whole world of, of the oil culture in California. So could you just talk a little bit about, about what that immersion was like for you? It's actually quite easy. You just have to drive to Bakersfield or a town called Taft, which yeah. is just south west of Bakersfield and they've done an amazing job of keeping their history alive just through photographs and letters um, any anything that that constitutes history they've really kept alive in what are essentially trailers um, with all the old oil gear lying around and it was really as simple as driving up there and the drive alone helps you use your imagination to think driving in in this car is kind of a pain in the ass. What would it be like to drive in a Model T to get to the place where you were trying to go to see if 
there was the possibility that there might be oil there. So it's, your imagination is, is pretty well fed by the time you get there. And then to be there and to see um, all the great history that they've preserved of what the, the, the camps were and what the towns became as a result of the oil actually being there. Mm -hmm. um, it was really quite easy and really quite fun to, to just be around and be in. And could you talk, um, Daniel, Daniel <laughs> about the, uh, what, what attracted you to the script? Uh, what, you know, how did the script kind of take hold for, for you and get a hold on you? Because I think as we all know, you, you do a s relatively small number of films compared to what you could be doing. So it seems like it's, it has to be a special choice when you decide to make a film. Well, P Paul came to me in the form of uh, uh, the script for There Will Be Blood, and um, I felt immediately drawn um, into the orbit of, uh, of a world that I knew nothing about, which seemed mysterious and intriguing, and, and, and I thought to myself, God help me, I'm going to have to do this thing. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and that was it. The bag was packed. And I sort of went through a, some sort of coy period of courtship with Paul, you know, where we met and flirted <laughs> and, you know, ha had numerous breakfasts together and so on. But really, the, the, there was no avoiding uh, this, this extraordinary uh, possibility that, Paul had laid before me, so it came to me in in that form, and and I don't know, I, I wouldn't even want to try and describe for myself or anyone else what it was about that story, but it was in the essence of the way in which Paul had had created the world, even on on paper in the script. It's very very unusual to to come across real writing, I mean, the writing that comes from a place where somebody has imagined themselves into a world, has seen that world through the eyes of, 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 uh, of the characters that they're, that they're creating. Um, and um, I was lost. That was it. <laughs> and and do you, did you talk much in advance about what the whole production process would be, you know, living, basically being based in this ranch um, in, in Marfa, Texas for so long? I mean, do you need to know a lot about how the film's actually going to be made before you decide to go ahead well, with it? Well, happily, there's like a, you know, with that, uh, the irrevocable uh, sense of, 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 of something that can't be avoided, uh, there's a kind of anesthetic comes with it, and you, you can't Im begin to imagine what it's actually going to uh, involve. Um, if you could imagine that thing, you'd definitely not get out of bed um but uh so no i you know i knew it was we i think we knew w without talking about it that it was going to uh be a, a demanding time but but the demands are the things that's the, you know the joy is in confronting those obstacles every day um you know cr paul created the playground that we were going to work on and 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 so uh, for all that it sometimes perhaps stretched us to our limits, it, it, was, it was a time of great, great joy just in the playing of, uh, of the game. 
the you know one thing I love about the character is that he's both um, incredibly taciturn, Danny Daniel I'll call him now Plainview and um, and charming. He's able to sort of do both and 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 so he's got this kind of I'll call it Irish charm because I did think of of John Huston's voice um, when I was watching the film, but the sort of tight-lipped toughness that we associate with American. Um, certain American characters. I don't know, so could you maybe talk about how you kind of built the, the voice and the characterization? Well, it's hard to recreate something, um, the idea of something that, for my own sake, and I don't, it may just be that I need to kid myself in, in that respect as, m as well as in, in, in many others uh, connected with the work, but but I, um, I, I don't, I don't dismember, uh, you know, confronted with a life that you have, you can't conceive of, and that's how it always begins. The, 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 um, I'm more often than not intrigued by a life that seems utterly uh, exotic and, and mysterious to me. So, but I don't try to dismember that into the, into into its separate parts. I, I, that would Sort of lead me off course very quickly. I, I you know, like we had a long time to work on it, and and during the course of that time, as far as possible, I, I try to allow um, that life, whatever it's going to be, to reveal itself. Um, of course, there are things that have to be, you know, things that need to be understood in connection with the the, the, the period that we're working with, the society of that period, the, that particular group working within the society, um, uh, the skills you might need to learn, although, in fact, digging a hole in the ground, I mean, pretty much anyone can do that. <laughs> um, you know, you choose to borrow another person's life and like a child you that's what you do um and uh, and as far as possible it needs to gradually um appear to you i suppose in its entirety rather than in its separate bits and pieces i want to ask you uh, both about the opening scene because that seems like such a microcosm of the film the ambition and physicality and loneliness of the character. So much is expressed. It's a classic. I mean, what, I don't know how many minutes that sequence is, but it's a classic sequence. And, um, and I also had heard that you shot the film in somewhat er, in sequence. But could you maybe each talk about what filming that, that beginning was like? Well, my memory of it is that we, we filmed the beginning at the beginning. I can remember... Um, the excitement of going to work on the first day and being at the bottom of a 50-foot mine shaft, and there was a, an entrance vertically and an entrance horizontally, and um, it was all so simple for the first couple hours because it was just Daniel hacking away, and then things started to have to fall, and he started to have to fall, and and then he did really fall, and he broke his rib, and then <laughs> I thought, well, all right, now we're making the movie. <laughs> and it's, it's probably not a movie until Daniel breaks a rib or two, you know. <laughs> the first assistant offered me a banana at that point. I'm not <laughs> quite sure what 
medicinal <laughs> effects he expected that to have. So, so you've done 11 movies because that's how many ribs you have, I guess. <laughs> um, and, and what about playing a character who, uh, the, I mentioned this loneliness aspect, he is such a loner and, and every time you're in a scene with another person you're trying to charm them or win them over or play it, tr deceive them somehow or what is that, I don't know, what is that like? I think, you know, to, you know going back to your, your question before, certainly one of the things that, that drew me so quickly in, into the story that Paul wanted to tell was, is I, you know, turn page after page after page. I thought, how long can he keep this going for? And, and it was described in such beautiful detail. In fact, that sequence before you hear Plainview speaking was a much longer sequence in the script. And indeed, we shot a much longer sequence, which finally mm. the entire film couldn't hold. But mm. we shot a much longer sequence of that. And there was something so beautiful to me about the idea of revealing a character, um, everything you needed to know about that man, about the savagery of his existence at that time in his life, you discovered without any single person saying a word. I thought that was quite wonderful. Um, and as, yeah, as you quite rightly said, the, the, the solitary nature of what he's doing, which of course, you know, these men who lived like animals in holes in the ground then necessarily had to become showmen and salesmen and develop a silver tongue to sell themselves the idea of what they were doing to these poor hapless families that were going to empty their pockets into, you know, into the coffers of some impossible dream. And... and um, uh, the, the idea of, uh, the, of that loneliness somehow still, that isolation, a sense of being somehow outside of humanity, remaining throughout the whole experience, even when you have to deal with humanity. Um, and, and in his case, Plainview always sees the very worst of people. Um, he looks for it and he finds it, as we all tend to look for and find the thing that, we, that we're looking for. Um, so uh, that, that transition from the solitary nature of his work into the showman was, was very interesting as well, yeah. This film, I mean, to me, seems to be so much about what America has always been all about and, and sort of what it still is today in a kind of messed up way. But, but do you have, do you latch on to anything like that, an idea about um, American movies, American cinema, or about America itself? Not at all, no, uh, because that's not part of my job. Uh, you know, I could think about it now and maybe, you know, go off on some riff about it, but, but yeah. my, my work, as opposed, Paul's work is very different in, as far as, you know, to whatever extent as a writer, he, he gouges into his own self-conscious, uh, subconscious that... that as a director, he has to oversee the entire workings of the thing that's going on um, around him. Um, but my job is a much, I have a much narrower focus, and it's vital that I don't objectify the story in that way, think about it in, in any broader terms than the very specific thing that's yeah. set before us. So do you, can you just respond to that in terms of what you're thinking about when you're... When you're yeah, it's not part of my job either. <laughs> okay, good. I, I, 
But um, you, um, in the New York Times recent magazine piece, sort of laid this big clue, I thought, by talking about uh, the treasure of Sierra Madre and what that film meant to you. Because I believe you said you sort of watch it every night or turn it on every night. Could you say anything about how that film might have inspired you or related to this? Sure. Um, I'm, you know, even, even before we started filming the movie, people were sick of hearing me go on about it. But, <laughs> and now I, I know they're really sick of me talking about it now. But um, I knew that film just, just because everybody knows it and I'd seen it and loved it. But in, 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 in the middle of struggling with writing, um, at some point early on, I remember com just coming across it and feeling like, wow, that's, thank God I came across this, because that really helps, really helps to see how um, economical and raw you know, storytelling could, 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 could help us, you know, could, help, could help me try to tell whatever was happening with the story that I was trying to write. And, I mean, the, the Treasure of Sierra Madre is just mad. It's great. And because it, it's really just watching someone go slowly insane over 90 minutes and what could be better. Um, <laughs> and, and, but really going all the way, not faking it, not getting halfway or three-quarters of the way and copping out. I mean, really going through yeah. to the fucking end and saying, this is it. And... Um, that, just see that in a film or see that from these filmmakers is encouraging. Say, shit, you know, okay, that's good. And, but more or less, too, is that it's, when I look at it, it's an adventure film or it's an action film, but it's really just a play. It's really just, you know, it's just these three guys at each other. It's just dialogue, and, and the three of them kind of desperate and ambitious and jealous and greedy and all those things. And it's a play between the three of them, but because of the setting and everything else... It's really an adventure film, an action film, and I thought, fuck, all right, that's, that's good, you know? And, and really, more than anything else, it was a way to figure out how to economically tell a story um, because I knew we were going to try uh, to try to tell the story. We weren't going to have that much money to do it, so it was how to do an, kind of an epic story, but in a, in a, small, in a small way with a, with a, with a, few, a, a few settings. I could go on and on about Treasure of Sierra Madre. Daniel's so <laughs> fucking sick of talking about Treasure of Sierra Madre. <laughs> so what I'll ask... <laughs> oh, God. The one, one aspect of your um, the filmmaking process that I, I read that you're very involved in, um, and it's similar to Robert De Niro, who's another actor who really works a lot with the costume designer and works on... Um, deals a lot with costume as a way of finding character. Is that, is that true? Is that an important part of the, the process, the choices? It seems like the choices of that, the hat you wear, every, every little thing seems to be expressive here. Well, it, it, is, imp it is important, but it can only be important uh, in the right way if it happens at the right time. In other words, if you have begun to understand the world, or at least to believe that you understand that world that you're creating through the eyes of this other life, then you begin to look at clothes in a different way, and you try and imagine the vanity, you, you try and feel the vanity of that particular man, because we all present ourselves, we choose, we may look at people in the street, you see, you know, you see fellas with a certain amount of dignity walking down 
the street with shopping bags, which slightly reduces that dignity. You can't <laughs> quite pinpoint why, but you, you sort of imagine, you know, the man that, who commands the attention of millions and, 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 and has a checkbook, you know, the size of the telephone directory at his disposal. And you imagine him standing in front of a mirror deciding between, you know, this pair of underpants or that pair of underpants and the hat and the coat. And so every single one amongst us makes these decisions uh, about the way in which we choose to present ourselves. And, and so in that context, yes, the clothes then become very important. Why did... You know, why would I choose this pair of boots as opposed to that? Um, so, yes, then, mm. then, then it becomes interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay, let's open it up, and I'll um, repeat questions so people can hear. Okay, the child who plays your adopted son, I guess the process of working with him and then and Paul uh, casting him and working with him. The simplest answer is that he's naturally gifted, quite, you know, honestly... Um, it, it really begins and ends with that because I know Daniel probably thought he had to do some explaining to Dylan about some of the nastier scenes and you know Dylan didn't need that. Dylan looked at us like I get this. I've got I got this from the second you guys started talking to me about it. Hmm. Um, it, it, it just a natural gift that he has uh, as uh, not really as an actor but as a person. I think just. He's a young man. Um, he's an old man trapped in a young man's body. Um, he was ten when when we made it. Not he was nine, turning ten, and he was sort of ten mostly while we were filming it. He's from a town called Fort Davis in Texas. Um, it's hard to describe him. I mean, you saw it. That's him. You know, there was. I remember there was a scene that was written. Like, I maybe perhaps a call for him to cry or become emotional, something like that. And he just, he wasn't having any of it. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't make sense to him. And it didn't make sense to him because he wouldn't do it. He just, you know, I said, well, what would you do? He said, I'd get angry. I'd give him a stink eye. I said, all right, that's it then, you know, give him the stink eye, you know. And I felt fool, you know, there's a great moment, you know, and you're, you've written something and you kind of, you know, you have to hand it off to somebody and you hope, you know, it's their job now. And Dylan took took charge of his role and, and contributed things constantly, um, ideas and, and his point of view on it. We didn't guide him through it and paint by numbers, stand here at all. I mean, he, it was very quick within, you know, within a few days he was, this is what I would do. And he wasn't, you know, he, he, was, he was being himself and he was being this character and he was applying both of the things constantly and he was a natural. I, I can't tell you, it was every, at the days that he w wasn't there, there was a gaping hole. We were just kind of miserable and waiting, you know, how, whatever, two days until he would come back. <laughs> Looking at each other like, ah, fuck, let's just get Dylan back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Do you want to yeah. add to that? That's it. Okay. <laughs> okay, right here. Well, I guess the question is uh, that this script has less dialogue than previous scripts, and I guess the question is whether that had to do with somehow with the adaptation process. Was there anything specific in terms of how you approach dialogue? Um, ironically, most of the quiet scenes are scenes that, that, like the scenes at the beginning are, 
I wouldn't say that they're original, but they're, they're kind of based on stories of the period. You know, they're based on Edward Doheny's first discovery of oil in downtown Los Angeles, you know, um, my, different mining experiences and accidents that I'd read about. Um, that stuff took care of itself because I just couldn't imagine what they'd be saying to each other. Even, I mean, Daniel's alone, so he's not going to talk to himself. And even those guys out there, you just can't imagine them, you know, hey, look at how much oil we got, you know. (laughs) 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 We're going to need more buckets or something like that, you know. Um, And most of the scenes that come from the book were really dialogue scenes, actually, like, you know, the real estate scene, the dinner table scene, more or less, is very similar. That opening speech, that's pretty straight from the book, so, Yeah. Okay, anything you could say about the pacing of the film? I mean, a film that moves around through so many different periods in time. Well, a lot of it has to do with Dylan Titchener, who's the editor of the film. Um, and we used to, um, we, we cut the movie in New York, ironically enough. And hmm. I think it really helped us, actually. It was great to go from West Texas in the middle of nowhere and um, edit the movie in New York City. It was so strange. There were all these quiet scenes and everything, and all you could hear was horns outside honking and fucking steel and metal and everything else. I don't know, but I think it was good. It actually helped us <laughs> pace the movie faster. And um, we used to have, every Wednesday night, we would have steak and vodka night, where it was just steak and vodka. We'd have no sides. And we said, this is what the movie should be, steak and vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, Paul Dano, amazing casting, but the decision to cast him is both brothers. It was a decision that happened. um, We'd begun shooting the film, and um, we'd we'd done some rearranging with the cast. We'd had Paul playing Paul Sunday originally, and the idea uh, came just through through, through a series of events where... um, we just thought, um, we just all sort of decided, you know, we, we should have Paul play this part but not replace him to kind of, and any, any chance to do a Cain and Abel, I think we were like, all right, well, let's try to do that. Um, but we brought Paul in to play Eli on very short notice, uh, which I think was a blessing for him, the way that you hear him talk about it. He was just like, thank God I didn't have any time to think about it. I just had to jump in and do it. He's talking about a scene. There's a campfire scene. We, we, we put it on this website that we were like, oh, the horrible purveyors of, really lazy. And, and um, <laughs> we, um, I just, we didn't need it. We didn't need the scene, but it was really good, and we wanted to just find a, a home for it and put it up there. <laughs> um, honestly, quite honestly, we didn't need it. <laughs> or Dylan thought we didn't need it. I thought I, might, I probably thought we needed it for a long time, and Dylan won that battle. Um, I wanted to ask you something about the father-son relationship. Just, it was just triggered by the, um, talking about this young actor who plays your son. I just want to know what playing those scenes were like for you in terms of the father-son relationships are so important. The, um, and whether the father actually loves the son or what he, what he feels like um, in that restaurant scene. There's some very chilling scenes and fascinating scenes. Um, and I'm just wondering what that side of the relationship was like for you. 
before we actually got to start shooting the film, I already felt very close with to Dylan uh, Frazier, and you know we spent a lot of time together, and um, was very fond of him. He's just a wonderful young man, and I began to worry a little bit about what his experience would be when the story began to unfold. So I talked to him. Paul mentioned it. You know, I talked to him one day and said, "Look, you know, you, I'm going to." speak to you harshly sometimes and you know I'm <laughs> going to treat you roughly sometimes and he looked at, at me like I was completely insane and <laughs> um and and it was you know plain view the pro plain view's relationship with his son or his adoptive adopted son is 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 that of a man who has elevated a junior partner into a senior position and and feels you know both affection and responsibility for them but nonetheless expects them to be able to come to work every day and do their job i mean plain view there's no part of him that understands what the responsibility is of a parent um and he's not so consciously cynical as to see, except perhaps at the end when he's had time to ruminate upon his life and look back upon it, to see that this, that this young man was a cute face to buy land. I mean, that, in effect, was part of, of, of the attraction. You know, he understood pretty quickly that it was no bad thing to have this, this appendage um, with him. But... You know, there was real love, real affection, but nonetheless, he regarded uh, this, this unnaturally mature child um, as, a, a, as a partner, as a working partner in his life. And the minute that he began to malfunction, he had no way of dealing with that. He had no understanding of how to deal with uh, this very central figure in his life being, um, you know working at a, uh, at a substandard level. Um, so he kind of cauterizes the wound and excises him, pushes him away, as he tends to do with you know, all figures as he begins to bring them closer to himself, revealing then as he sees the, begins to see them, see the fallibility of, of, of another human being, then he, he cuts them away and gradually separates himself step by step from mankind. And I just since somebody brought up Paul Dano, and it's such an amazing character, the Eli Sunday. If you could talk a little bit about that relationship, because that these are two characters that are flip side, you know, flip side of a coin in a way. Or there's um, well, they're locked together in in clear recognition of each other's fraudulence, really. <laughs> yeah. Big fan of Johnny Greenwood and this amazing score. So can you yeah. talk about the process of scoring this? Um, Johnny, I approached Johnny about doing the film, and um, I sent him the script, and he'd never read a script before, and so he said, it's great, it's great, but he said, I, it, Catwoman could have been great, I don't really know, I've never read a script. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I assured him, I think, I think it is really good. Um, and he, um, we talked a little bit about maybe just um, the sort of instrumentation, you know, sort of, and sort of decided it should be, you know, strings or, or you know, sort of, you know, um, old stuff, no computers or anything like that. And, um, but he saw the film 
And um, I remember bringing the film to him in London. He was, um, I, I'd put one piece that he'd written before in there, Smear, um, and a little bit of this popcorn superhead receiver piece, just to kind of show him, you know, this is how the stuff that you've written can work against picture. And I remember him just bounding out of the room, and like, all right, you know, what do we need? We need some music. <laughs> and, um, and more or less, the way it went, it sort of worked just some back and forth. Um, um, he's in England, and I was in New York at the time, and just sort of back and forth, sending things back and forth, notes back and forth. And ultimately, he went off and just came back with a couple hours worth of music. I remember him sending me a note saying, I've got some music, but I think I've gone a little bit overboard, you know. <laughs> he did. He wrote so much more than was needed. But um, it was a pleasure to work with him. Yeah. The other Daniel, I mean, if the pro I guess the question is about, like, what you go through, um, the, what, you know, what this character goes through and how that uh, affects you. Mm. Sort of, does it work for you from the outside in? or does it be, My feeling about about you know talking about that specific part of the story and indeed any other part of it would be that that uh, for my own personal sake and and everyone finds their own way of doing things but the moment you step outside of something and objectify it then you've distanced yourself from the experience of that life and therefore as far as possible you know no there was no part of me that that made any conscious decision about how the younger and middle-aged plain view would develop into the older plain view. Um, it just seemed to develop out of the story and, and his experiences. If that answers the question, I don't know. Are you surprised when you see the finished film? You said before that you don't look at dailies, so it must be quite an experience to finally see this. Yeah, uh, the I can't, honestly, I saw Paul sent me um, a rough cut of the film fairly early on in the editing process and um, I honestly can't remember how I felt the first time I saw it except that it developed so quickly into the into the kind of correspondence the to and fro about how it might develop from there into something else or even some other completely different thing um, it, it you know Paul, Paul's attitude towards the work was so fluid and was obviously still very much searching himself. So I never felt the need to judge it at that stage, at that early stage, as something that that might be a, a finished piece. It just seemed to be in in the process of becoming itself. So um, I, I I remember the I, rem I remember the first time that we saw the film, and and, and we've been sort of leading up to it, and and really, and I tell you this, we sw we swore to each other that we we're going to watch it the first time. We said no booze, we're not going to drink, we're not going <laughs> to fucking drink, you know. And it was like a like a like a like a comedy cut, like cut to us in the fucking bar drinking Guinness, like beforehand, just like all right, let's just just one, just one, and then we'll wa and we'll watch the movie. And of course, we had two or three, and then we sat and we watched the film. And, and then, but then we had a sober one the next morning with our cups of coffee. And <laughs> we did have a kind of lover's tiff when Paul first told me he was going to show me the film. I said, I don't want to see the film. Why would, why, why would you think I would want to see the film? And then he burst into tears, and you know, and we went through that whole thing. And, uh, but, but it was great when we made up again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you've, 
we'll take one more, but thanks for taking us through your whole relationship. So, <laughs> back there. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess how would, you know, how would you say your previous films have sort of built, led towards, towards this? Well, they've all led to this, I guess, because yeah. this is where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah. that's pretty good. That's okay. I'd say that's a pretty good place to be at. So, um, yeah. congratulations again to all of you. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.